today's somewhat depressing episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunstreet. If we've learned anything over the last weekend's election results, it's now more than ever, progressives need to get organised. And guess what? That's exactly what we do at Dunstreet, and we do it really, really well. We're dedicated to using data-driven grassroots organising to build winning campaigns and make the world essentially a better place. So whether you're in business or an issue-based campaign or an organisation driving change in your community, Dunstreet develops strategies to overcome challenges by connecting people that share the same values and organise them to achieve common goals from the ground up. So to get in touch and find out how we can bring change to your community, hit us up at dunstreet.com.au. Hi, my name is Stephen Donnelly and welcome to episode three of Socially Democratic. On today's show, we've got the Assistant Secretary of Victorian Labor, Claire Burns, to come in and actually do a bit of a debrief on the election campaign that happened over the weekend. Um, And thanks to everyone who gave us all the positive feedback from last week's episode with uh, Sabina Husick. A lot of people actually enjoyed the candor and the uh, inside mail on the campaign and that's something that uh, socially democratic is always going to do we have a commitment to telling you exactly what's going on uh, in election campaigns and not give you the spin and try and bring on people who will give you an honest reflection on whatever issues are happening in their community Um, and we want you to know as much as we possibly know about what's going on in campaigns and politics both here uh, and overseas Uh, Thanks to the feedback that we got and also just to note that the podcast is now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher. So you can now subscribe to the podcast via your favourite app because it's now been populated in all the major um, apps that are are available online. Also, if you are using Apple Podcasts, can you please uh, leave a review and give us a rating? It helps with uh, getting uh, our podcast um, on the uh, Apple Podcast, um, you know, latest or new or subscribe to this one. So it helps with the promotion, gets more people listening to the show. Um, and also don't forget, if you want to get updates on the podcast, just follow us at Dunstreet on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Let's go to today's episode. Claire Burns, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Stephen. It's good to be here. Socially democratic. Now we've. Um, it's not the first time that you and I have been on a podcast. We've had a few runs at it before. Yeah, so yeah. We're, we're well practiced. Um, so today we are going to break down. What? Well, actually, no, no, we're not going to break down. We're going to talk about the weekend. Yeah, the wash up. Indeed, mm. and I think um, what we uh, want to achieve is um, not to do a whole bunch of random hot takes about the election no. everyone's got their opinions and yeah. they're obviously they're entitled to them mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but certainly what we do want to talk a bit about is some of the facts that have come out of the election like results and things i, I really am interested in getting your thoughts on um not how the campaign went but just uh, some observations about the campaign itself from someone who actually worked on the campaign sure. as opposed to a whole bunch of people on twitter who have opinions but That's probably right. didn't you know yeah, and their opinions are coming from a very different angle yeah. and a very different place. Yep. And I think it will be good to debrief with another party person. Yeah, and hopefully with some of the people listening, this might be a bit cathartic for them as well. Yeah, I hope so. Because we're all going through. It's a, Look, it's a heavy duty bummer, that's <laughs> for sure. It is. Yeah. Um, as Jack Kennedy said, victory has a thousand fathers and mm. defeat is an orphan. Um, mm-hmm. So let's not just whitewash a, a camp, camp campaign that really largely 
suggested that in the three years between the last one, nothing moved. Yeah, it, that's right. We, we are, for all intents and purposes, in a pretty similar spot. Yep. In, you know, in terms of the seats and, and numbers in the house and... Yeah. So let's look at those numbers, shall we? Sure. Um, and start by looking at the, the two-party preferred f- nationally. The yeah. coalition ended up uh, – sorry, we're recording this um, at like 1 o'clock on Monday. Mm-hmm. Um, so these There's figures – things undecided still. Absolutely will change. Yeah. But at yeah. the time of recording, uh, the coalition had a two-party preferred of 50.8. Yeah. Uh, and the ALP, obviously, 49.1. Uh, um, and that was um, – you know, that was largely a 0.5% swing to them on their 2PP. Mm-hmm. And when you look at their primary vote and ours, we both got swings away from us on our primary vote. Correct. Small swings, but it wasn't like people were jumping on the on the coalition train. Yeah, absolutely. And mm-hmm. the, so the coalition's national primary was 41.4%. Labor's was 33.9%, so mm-hmm. basically... 34%. The Greens at 10, Palmer at 3.4, One Nation at 3, and other yeah. uh, was at around about 8.3%. Yeah. And so if you look, if you add up the minor parties and the independents, they got about 25% thereabouts, um, So, which is about a percent more, I think, than last time. I mean, you look at how that translates into the House, and I think they are 7 or 8% of seats. Um, but it's really it, – that's a big number. For small, for minor parties and independents to pick up. And for a long time, I think people have been saying, oh, is this the death of the two-party system? Is it on its way out? I don't think it is, but there's something to be taken away from the combined figure that parties and, and candidates outside of the Labor Party and the Liberals and Nationals picked up. Yeah. And I think every election there's always the analysis that this is the death of the two-party system yeah. in this country. I've been hearing that since yeah. <laughs> For a I, long was a, time. I was a child, mm, you know. Mm, mm, mm. Um, I think I've still got, when I was a young teenage nerd and I, for some reason, decided to keep um, clippings of newspaper articles that I thought were of interest. I think I might have read it somewhere that maybe right. Paul Keating did it or something. Right. <laughs> so yeah. I just had to cut out, you know, articles of the Australian mm-hmm, and put mm-hmm. it, file it away in like a file of thing that my mum bought me. Yeah. And I remember a full like six-page spread in the Australian after the 93 election, I think it right. was, saying this is the death of the National Party, yeah. not the country party, that's kind of, this is their final hurrah. Yeah. And well, that was, and everyone was saying that that was going to be the case this time. Yeah. That was what people were predicting about the Nats. Yeah. Um, and isn't it funny? I guess if you look at it in that historical context, the same hot takes get dragged out every bloody time before and after yep. it's like no one's got anything fresh to say yeah, <laughs> it's all pretty tired yeah 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 but really this the number of so the senate will be interesting but again it doesn't look like they've picked up that many more when i say they i mean you know the fringe dwellers have not picked yep. up that many more in the senate or won't mm. and they and it's um there's stasis in the house in terms of the number of people on the cross bench yeah so yeah and as Daniel Andrews said on the uh, on the ABC on Sunday morning, uh, the voters are never wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, do you know what was really interesting? I, I was reading some uh, some things that Kevin Bonham, the the cephologist from Tasmania, interesting fellow. Um, some of the things he was tweeting about uh, about deposit cash, and so I think now I'd have to go back and have a look, um, but. Fraser Anning and Clive Palmer lost 
hundreds of thousands of dollars in deposit cash because none of their candidates got over 4% in any of the seats that they stood in. Yep. Um, so deposit cash, maybe if there's people listening not knowledgeable about politics in that regard, in that machine regard, um, the money you put down to be a candidate basically, it's like two grand, I think. Uh, and they just, for all of the whip up about it, got nowhere. Yeah, we'll talk about... And that's an expensive exercise. That is a very, <laughs> this is a very expensive exercise. We'll talk about Palmer in a moment. The one thing that made me feel a little bit better. <laughs> the, um, breaking down it by, uh, by state, the, the, the primary mm. votes, um, a 1.7% swing to Labor in the great state of Victoria, mm. um, a 3.2% swing against the Coalition in New South Wales, mm. uh, a 2% swing against Labor, 0.3% swing to the Coalition Queensland, uh, 3.6% swing against Labor, 0.3% to the coalition. Obviously, a lot of votes then swung to One Nation and the um, United uh, Australia Party. WA, uh, just under 2% swing against Labor, uh, 3.5% swing against the coalition. Um, Tassie, 4% swing against Labor, 09 against the coalition. Isn't that funny too because you looked at a lot – I did yesterday – um, was looking at a lot of memes online and there was people joking about, you know, Queensland seceding. I probably made a joke like that on Saturday night too. Yeah. Um, and I, it's almost like it's gallows humour, right? It's the things that you joke about when things are dark and it's not serious and, and we have to address the issues that cause that more broadly. But look yep. at Tassie. It wasn't just Queensland. <laughs> like, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, and then uh, South Australia, just finished off South Australia, um, for, uh, swings to everyone because of Xenophon not mm-hmm. being in the contest mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. the sort of distribution of the yeah, collection of that's votes that hit. everywhere, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, whilst uh, there's a, a, a mood out there of disappointment, mm-hmm. and that's genuine, I don't, I'm not um, suggesting you shouldn't be disappointed because mm-hmm. we lost, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes looking at the numbers, even these raw bits mm-hmm. of data mm-hmm. in the days after the election mm-hmm. um, does suggest that um, it, it's, it's not a disaster um, in the scale of what people are suggesting. Nothing, no, not nothing by really, any stretch. Yeah, nothing really moved. That, that's the thing, and I think that's the shock because mm. we were expecting it to. And that's where we have to look at why. Like, why did things settle where they did? Because you had, you had people come to us in Victoria, you had people move away from us in Queensland. It sort of balanced itself out, and it meant that there wasn't a huge shift in the numbers in the House... Yeah. And what's going on there? And expectations mm. plays a big part of that. Mm. Perception That's plays true. a big part of that. That's we'll true. talk a little bit about that later in the podcast. Uh, just to just to note, those um, seats still in doubt, Bass, Chisholm, uh, Cowan, Lily and Macquarie, according to the ABC, but on the AEC's mm. website there, just listed Bass, Chisholm and uh, Macquarie yeah. as being uh, in doubt. Just going to get a sense from you about Chisholm um, mm. at the moment. How mm. are we looking there? What's your thoughts on I our prospects the, there? The last time I looked this morning, the... Coalition, the Liberal Party, sorry, were, I mean, really a handful of votes ahead, a hundred and something, I think. But we've still got a lot of postals to count. Um, I'm of the understanding that we issued a lot more postals in, oh, sorry, we received back a lot more postals than the Coalition did in Chisholm. Yep. Um, so it could end up being very good for us um, in that regard. Once we've Once the count's fully done, it's just way too tight for there to be any sense at the moment. Yeah. Um, um, they're marking – the ABC website's got the Liberals ahead uh, by around about 200. Yeah. 
or so. That's so, incredibly tight. Yeah, 2PP right now is 50.1 yeah. to 49.9, mm-hmm. so it's super tight. Um, right. Pulling ahead, well, looking okay. We're ahead in both Cowan and in Lily. I think we're fine in Cowan. And Lily had me sweating on Saturday night, uh, but it, we'll probably get home. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, I, yeah um, Annika Wells, um, Dunn Street, did a uh, fundraiser for her and Josh oh, Burns yes, great. Uh, a while ago. So mm-hmm. we're certainly keen for um, Annika to get up uh, good... Uh, a young Labor woman that we want to get into the parliament. And, mm. you know, even in sometimes the, these um, uh, electoral defeats, there are some silver linings that can come out of it. And seeing people like Annika get into that's right into parliament would be a great thing for the party moving forward. Mm. Um, okay, let's, um, let's talk about polling because yeah. that's what mm. a lot of people are talking about online. Um, yeah. And uh, it's, the polling has come in for a bit of stick mm. by people. Um, and I think there's some justification in that, but it's not entirely fair to yeah. pin the pulses. I mean, there's maybe some methodological issues. There's a whole bunch of factors that play into why the polls told us one story yep. and Saturday night told another. Um, if polling had been a human being they would go and live on a, a remote island now and never return <laughs> back to democracy again because people got some really strong views about polling. <laughs> yes, that's right. And we are a bit of a poll-obsessed nation. But really, like, if polls were perfect, you wouldn't need an election. They are a predictor. Correct. And there's always a margin of error. And if you look at the margin of error, which was is usually, is, I think a lot of the news poll ones, about 1, 1.8%. It depends which poll you're looking at. And, and sample how they, size. And that's right. That kind of stuff. Um, but actually the polls, poll numbers are always within the margin of error. And when you're looking at small um, percentages, we, you know, 51.5 at 1.52, there's always a lot of room there for it to flip the other way. Yeah. The, um, I mean, the 2PP, the nationwide two-party preferred going into Friday afternoon, I think it was either Galaxy or the News Poll mm. one, in the end was out by just around two points. Yeah. Um, and if you break down the same poll um, for primary votes... Um, the One Nation primary was correct yeah. in the poll. The United Palmer Greens was the Greens is almost correct. Greens was out by a point. Yeah. Um, uh, and it was just the Coalition and the Labor Party primary was um, both incorrect by three points. Mm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Okay, so um, that is outside the margin of error. Yeah. Um, but, you know, not that far off. Interesting, mm, mm. Uh, Nate Silver, who mm. can be regarded in Western democracy as a bit of a guru, um, in From 5.38. Correct. Um, tweeted um, about the Australian election, about polling, right. saying the polling error was quite minor and the perception to the contrary mostly reflects the combination of the media's innumeracy and its cosmopolitan bias. Interesting. And the interesting thing, because Nate obviously does, is it, like it works, it runs the US-based organisation, and in 2016 came out after the shock loss of the Democrats and was talking about the fact that, they, you know, in the States they do um, percentage polling in terms of uh, likelihood of a win. So, you know, I think, I think from memory, and it was a few years ago, the Democrats um, had a 70% chance of winning based on polls and the Republicans had a 30% chance of winning. We don't, we don't talk in those figures here. Um, if we did, I reckon we probably would have had something a similar story being told yeah. and um you know like 30 percent i'm not saying that's what what chance they did have of winning but that's not insignificant there was always the chance but we don't talk about it yeah. because for so long the polls said we were ahead and you've just you think and and all the aggregates of the polls 
put us ahead. Um, we we really thought that that was telling us what was happening. Yeah, yeah. And, and obviously, a lot of people have frustration in the in the polls, particularly me, the New South Wales. Uh, sorry, the um, news um, the news poll. Um, which over which is the, one of the most trusted. Yeah, over the last mm. you know f- five thousand days has had mm. Labor ahead, uh, and then all of a sudden on election day that doesn't turn out to be the case. But it was always like it, you know some days it was fifty three, some days it might have been got at fifty four. But yeah, in yeah. the end, it kind of closed down to fifty one. Yeah, it, but in the end, if you look at those polls that were running out every couple of days in the final week or two, it showed that those undecideds were probably breaking. To the coalition, yeah, it tightened in favour of the coalition, and it, we, you know, it shouldn't have been doing that if we were going to win. Yeah. Um, uh, interestingly, some of the chat when the numbers were coming in on Saturday night, one of the things that got brought up was an exit poll that Nine had done, Channel yeah. Nine, mm-hmm. or they were reporting on it. I'm not sure who'd conducted it, but yeah. uh, it had, I think they had done three thousand people nationwide, and it had us something like at something like 53 or 54. They had done an exit poll of 3,000 people yeah. and that was what it was showing and then an hour later it came in nowhere near that. No. So it's it's an interesting phenomenon. And there's so many ways that you can break down polls and say, oh, look, you know, it's um, there's a problem with landlines. People aren't answering their landlines or we're not... Um, you know, we're not factoring in education levels and adjusting accordingly and all of these kinds. There's a there's a bias towards people with higher education, so it's favouring progressive parties. And yep. there's a lot of things that you can look at in terms of methodology, but maybe we just need to um, unhook ourselves from the polling IV yeah. and, and stop basing literally everything, literally everything. You look at what's happened in the Liberal Party, you look at what happened in the Labor Party with all of this revolving door of leadership. Because of polls. Because of polls. Yeah. And maybe the whole time after Abbott switching to Turnbull and Turnbull switching to Morrison and the polls that that was based on, maybe they were always ahead in the public's mind. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a genuine question that, mm. that, that does need to be asked. Mm. Um, the, just to pick up on that point before about the, um, the exit polls, mm. I've never known an exit poll. No. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. Um, I mean, just people, yeah. people walking out and mm-hmm. just lying. Yeah. <laughs> or well, just the sample sizes are just so... Isn't this the other thing, though, um, is, is that polls these days are done much more... There's fewer, um, I think, cat, what you call caddy polling, so those, you know, talking to a person, yep. like an interview poll. Yep. That's expensive. So p- polls are robos now. People don't care about lying to a robo. Correct. People, people muck around with that all the time. So there's probably, there's some inaccuracy there. Um, there's what Kevin Bonham calls herding. There's that sort of aggregating effect. One of the things I found interesting from the 2018 Victorian state election um, with, our, with our polling and the track poll that we were conducting, mm. um, because I think that it, I think if you were to start to look at the polling um, at a seat level for the federal poll that just happened, mm. you are going to see a lot of inconsistencies yeah. constantly. Yeah. Uh, and the Herald Sun front page, a couple of days out, had the deacon, you know, on a knife edge. Mm. Um, and, um, and you know, to some degree, there was obviously a huge swing to Labor in, in the seat mm. of deacon in mm-hmm. the end, mm-hmm. um, but not as accurate as what the, the, that particular poll had suggested. And there'd be other ones that are way, way out. Um, without 
giving away the methodologies of how we certainly did it at a Victorian level, it was very rare for us to look at a, a seat level poll and then even go as far as in doing a 2PP. And in fact, throughout the whole campaign, we rarely looked at a two-party preferred. We just looked at our primary vote. Yeah. We looked at our opponent's primary votes. Mm-hmm. We looked at other. Mm-hmm. Um, and other would historically be quite high yeah. early on in the piece because when you do sample someone um, and you'll say red, blue, green mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. other, mm-hmm. if they're undecided, my view is that if they're undecided or they're unsure or they haven't made up their mind, mm-hmm. they'll park their vote right. on other because it's easier to do than actually make a commitment to whether it's someone on the phone or if it's a robo, it's just an easier option to go, you know what, I haven't decided yet, so mm-hmm. I'll go with other. And eventually that they may end up voting other um, and then follow the card, the how to vote card, which will lead their preference to one of the two parties, or eventually they'll go, all right, I know who I'm picking. Yeah. Um, and you notice that that other slowly d- descends. Drops off. Um, yeah. And mm. I certainly was all throughout this campaign, I was looking at the other from the published polls. I didn't have access to the private polls in this case, but I was looking at the other. I just want to get your reflections on on that because I think that the other is where the answer lies to um, who's going to win or lose. It is, but also interestingly, if you look at <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, for example, I think it was Ipsos polling into Victoria and putting One Nation up as a option for primary vote, and they were running in what four or five seats here. Yep. <laughs> What's that going to tell you? Yeah. You're going to get people in seats who can't vote for One Nation saying that that's who the, who they will vote yeah, for. So what true. does it mean? Yeah. And that's that's also part of the problem. Yeah is that inaccuracy around the questions, and that's what I meant before with methodology, there are problems there that need to be um, accounted for. Funny, actually, one of the interesting things from the election uh, from a polls perspective is how seriously the betting agencies took them. And obviously not... I mean, polls probably play into the odds that they put, but so does the money that people are putting on to candidates and parties to win... Million, they've lost millions. Yeah, in paying out early, and you think, what were you doing? First of all, yeah, but also that they got them wrong because I, I usually take a bit more faith from the bet, the betting odds in terms of where things are at. Yeah, um, and this time it was so out of whack. Yeah, and yeah. It, didn't, it, it was yeah. I wonder if with the, with the betting agencies for them that that's not their core business and it's just good advertising. It sucks in people to, you know, as a marketing strategy or a business development mm. strategy to get people to create a sports bet account. Yeah. Um, and the entry into it, it's like, a, you know, the gateway drug yeah. is uh, is po- politics and then uh, how well I'm at it. I might as well put a bet on, you know, Maybe. Carlton Collingwood this weekend. And then yeah. uh, there's a guy I knew... Irish fellow who used to work at Centibet and he said that we make our money mm. in horse racing. That's right, yeah. Um, that's that's our core business. Mm. Um, and the secondary one would be probably sports. Politics for us, we don't really know much about it. Any intel we can get helps us, but it's not the centre of... Do you think Do you think the early payout was a bit of a uh, marketing strategy? I do. Interesting, okay. Yeah, yeah I do. It was they instead of dropping five grand, uh, five million on an ad campaign, they dropped it. They dropped it on news articles that other people were going to write about their yeah. payout. Mm. And just talking to friends when mm. they got it paid out, what did they do with the money they got paid out? They went back in and put money and on. Put mo- yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, So they got the money back. Mm. Or well, my sample of four people. Put money back. <laughs> <laughs> There's no margin of error. Yeah, in that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm questioning your methodology. <laughs> 
Um, the, the other point I wanted to make just before we move on to the next topic is uh, Clive Palmer. I said last week on the podcast that um, Clive has done us all the service in the um, campaign world industry by running a randomised control experiment to test mm. the effectiveness of, Billboard. <laughs> of billboards, TV advertising, print advertising, um, radio, newspaper wraparounds, <laughs> uh, digital advertising, mm. but not doing anything else mm-hmm. and just running one simple core message yeah. consistently across these mediums and then we'll find out exactly how much it can shift in yeah. votes. Yeah. Turns out it's 3%. Yes. Thank you, Clive. That's, a, that's an expensive 3%. That is a very expensive 3%. <laughs> and I pose a question to you. Would it would still have been 3% if you'd spent 80 million, 70 mm, million, 60 mm, million, mm. 50 million, 40 million? There's a study done by one of the universities in the US that said that uh, for every extra dollar, effectively, that you mm. spend on TV advertising, there are, it's not a, a dollar doesn't give you if, – if, if $1 gives you one point and $2 gives you two points, mm. $3 – it's not as basic as that. Yeah, yeah. But – it doesn't work that way because $1 gives you one point, $2 gives you... Diminishing returns. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's and, right. And I, Clyde, like mm, he could have just stopped mm, mm, mm. at $20 million perhaps. Yeah, he could have. And I think uh, Wayne Swan put it really well when he described Clive's exercise as uh, preference recycling, basically. Mm. And some people are questioning... Like there's two ways you can look at it. I think you can look at it as Clive being an egomaniac who wanted his spot and he wanted the limelight and he wanted that that um, hobby, basically, which is how he treated his place in Parliament last time. So dipped in and out, used it as a platform. Um, and there's people who will say that that's what he was aiming for this time. And then there's others who will say that it was all of a cynical exercise to drive co- votes back to the coalition so that he can end up with his mind in, in the Galilee Basin. Yeah, and he certainly... That he was basically buying himself... <laughs> Um, his next business venture. Yeah. And maybe yeah. that's what it was. Yeah. Um, it, and it's scary to think. And and that disgusting that you can spend that much money on a campaign and not have anyone really scrutinise the fact that you're also uh, in debt to a whole bunch of workers who you left hanging when mm. you ran your business into the ground and neglected to pay them their entitlements and their superannuation and uh, and left communities devastated. And that really never got properly spoken about in the general media. No, no, it certainly did not. And I felt that there was almost a... He'd taken a bit from the Donald Trump playbook mm. in the way that he ran that messaging campaign. It mm. was very... Um, nationalistic, jingoistic, yeah, um, and trying to be controversial, like the, the, the interview he did in one of the, the morning mm. breakfast programs, where he was like, "I don't give a stuff," you know, yeah, yeah. Um, trying to be really that and, shock, shocking on politics, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, um, and um, that nativism as well, yeah, um, the Chinese with their airport somewhere in the middle of Western Australia right. that I kind of got to look at and was like, oh, mm. I haven't got time to read this. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's interesting. I found with Clive, um, oh, you know, when he first sort of rocked up on the scene, he had some interesting points of view and I'll never forget, he was almost a bit of a Lambie at one point that I wanted to kind of get behind, right? Um, and that's actually Lambie, something else we should talk about. That's quite interesting. Um, but he had some really... Uh, almost seemed like good class politics at first. He was really getting behind an increase in the dole. He was really supporting, um, in terms of what he was saying, mm. better policies for ordinary working people, working class people. I'll never forget his dole comments, talking about how 
we need to give these pe- people who need social assistance, we need to give them a break. I was on the dole once, you know, I know what it's like. You need to be supported in times when you're down and out so that you can build yourself back up. And I remember when that happened, I thought, geez, maybe, you know, maybe this is something that we can kind of, this is a positive thing for the parliament to have someone in there saying that. It was all rubbish in the end. Just because you have one decent opinion about something doesn't mean that your your politics or your ideology is solid, as, as it's been shown. Um, that evaporated and we were left with somebody who's clearly just um a narcissist and and this was all a pr exercise for him but yeah. anyway an expensive one yeah uh well, drop in the bucket for him really yeah yeah exactly mm. let's uh just turn our attention to the the campaign itself to some degree and Last week on the podcast with Sabina Husick, we sort of talked about what is the pathway to victory for the Liberals and for Scott Morrison, and we mm. sort of floated the idea of, and by evidence of looking at the type of camp they were running, was um, a battle, a contrast between Scott Morrison mm. and Bill Shorten, mm. um, not not talking up the Liberal brand, but really running on, on, on ScoMo and this mm. image of ScoMo and mm. arguably this rebuilt image of ScoMo um, and pitting that against both um, Bill, Shorten, the leader, and and this sort of big policy agenda based around um, uh, taxation. Um, and I know that that's not how Labor's trying to frame it, but he was framing it. Like I, I saw those billboards all across the city about yeah. no one um, – um, don't you know, you can't risk Labor, no one can afford um, – uh, uh, Labor and its bill – and, sorry, Labor and the and the Bill Australians can't afford. Yeah, and then yeah, he he, he, prayed, he preyed on people's economic anxieties. Yeah, absolutely. He stirred up that fear. Um, I just want to get a sense from from you on that. Did it, is it something that, from the campaign's perspective, even like um, in in the field, um, was that coming up on the doors? Did you find people were worried about taxation or? Uh, I really. In the field, I really didn't. Talking to voters, and look, I spoke to a lot of voters. In Victoria, it wasn't coming up. People, well, that's not entirely true. People were a bit worried about um, spending. So I spoke to people and, you know, because of our the way we approached this, we were talking to undecided voters. Yep. People, there were some people who brought up um, spending. Oh, I'm worried about, you know, worried about Labor's, you know, they just want to spend. Okay, that's not a new narrative. That's not a new thing. People yeah. say that about us. Yeah. Um, it came up in the 2018 campaign as well. Yeah, so. that's right. Yes, a lot actually. I heard that a yeah. lot too. In the yeah. end, they they wanted us to spend. Turns yeah. out they liked what we were spending money on. Um, but people that that did come up. But I honestly, um, and look, I spent quite a bit of time um, in the eastern, outer eastern suburbs, talking to people, and people were talking about things like the great private health insurance rot. The, I got the NDIS a lot. A lot of people brought up the state that the NDIS is in, which is interesting because that accords with things that I have heard as a speech pathologist working with clients. Um, families are quite frustrated by that process. It, there was this sense that the system that has been built is neglected. Um, I Look, Labor was talking about a reorganisation of our economic system. Um and the people that I was speaking to were not worried about that. Yeah. They were worried about um, they were worried about the healthcare system. They were concerned about things like childcare. Um, it really like good grid issues, yeah. and that's what 
that was what I was having conversations about. Funnily enough, in you know, in Victoria, the the result showed that in terms of the swing to us here, people people wanted to get on board with what we were doing. Yeah, the um, it made me think of a um, an anecdote I want to share with her on uh, when I was still um, working at um, Victorian Labor, and we had. Um, Peter Mandelson, mm. now Lord Mandelson, mm. on Pot on the Hill. Mm-hmm. Uh, and off air, he asked me, um, we started talking about, I think um, the New Zealand election had just happened. Mm. Um, and he asked me about Jacinda Ardern. Mm. Um, and we are talking about tax. Mm. Um, and I just said to him that, um, I said, well, actually, yeah, I'd had spent a little bit of time in New Zealand with the campaign and she was doing quite well, or Labor was doing quite well on the polls, but two or three weeks out, the Conservative Party, the National Party, started to run a bit of a scare campaign on on tax right. and had and had said that um, that um, that Labor was going to increase taxes and Jacinda had to come out and actually do a whole thing and try and put the, the, a dampener on, on that and said... We're not going to increase taxes, but we are going to have some like, sort of tax summit or something, mm-hmm. which kind of, in the end, it seemed like it wasn't enough for voters because there was a um, correlation, but there was a ten point drop in the polls um, over that three week period, and then the polling that came in on election day basically was roughly what the election was, the outcome was. Um, so a lot of people sort of put it down to you know conservatives running a scare campaign against uh, the Labor Party on tax. Um, and Matt, when I sort of recounted this to Peter Mandelson, he said, he said, I do recall, in this very posh English accent, mm-hmm. I'm not going to do it very mm-hmm. well, because I do, yes, I do recall when, when Tony came over to Australia, mm. he means Tony Blair, mm. and he met with Paul Keating, and they were having a chat about, you know, the election that we had coming up and stuff, and he'd mentioned that Gordon Brown was considering um, taking to the next election, uh, in, you know, leading to 97, a, you know, an increase in some taxes. And Keating grabbed and Blair, Blair's telling me this. He said, Keating just grabbed me and threw me against the wall and said to me, under no circumstances will you as a Labour leader take increase in taxes to a poll. That is absolute suicide. He said, and you know, Keating's quite a, you know, calm, relaxed man. And then all of a sudden he's literally just choking me. Like, and, you know, and, and Mandelson was just like saying, going, like, this is... Yeah. This was a lesson for us. He said, do not do this. Mm. This was Keating's view. Right. Um, uh, and I just thought about that and thinking about how the Liberals have whipped up this... Kind of, this essentially was a fear campaign. Yes, discord. Yeah, that's um, right. Do you, know, do you know what's interesting? I think... Um, so one of the things when I was out... I, I remember this conversation I had with a voter. Um, it, it was last week. And... It's, a little, it's emblematic, I think, of maybe what's, what's going on. Um, it was in a seat who had an incumbent Liberal MP and she was talking to me about some of her issues and concerns and she had a, has a son with a disability and hates the NDIS. I mean, not even that it's um, been neglected and, and is heavily you know, bureaucratic and hard to navigate. She hates... The whole system. And so she said, I'm not voting Labor because I hate the NDIS and we can't get anywhere with it with our son and there's all of these issues and problems. And so she just didn't like that we had built it in the first place, right? Which yeah. is interesting because I, I rarely hear that yeah. from other people, but Same. she didn't like it. Um, so I won't be voting Labor. And I said, I, you know, I, okay, that's, look, 
I understand that and this is your lived experience. Um, Who are you thinking of voting for? And she said, I don't know. And I said, well, are you thinking of voting for the Liberals? No, I'm not. You know, she said, this local member came to our house for a photo opportunity a little while ago um, for a newspaper story about the NDIS. And he, he was in our house and he got photographed with us and our son. And two weeks later, we were out somewhere in the electorate and we saw him and we went up to him and he didn't remember who we were. And I said, wow, you must be feeling really cynical about politics in general right now. And she said, I really am. Mm. And I think that's where people were at. I think that's why we haven't seen much of a change. I think people are feeling... I think they're feeling anxiety about the world. Like, you look at what's happened in the last year with our Banking Royal Commission, the uh, Royal Commission into Institutional Abuse of Children. Um, You look at what's happened with politics and the revolving door of leadership. Look at Christchurch. There's a lot of stuff happening out there that has people, I think, feeling really unsure about the world and distrusting of institutions of politicians, of people in positions of power. And actually, I think that's translating into them feeling distrusting of one another. Mm. And when we get into that place where you've got low social trust and you don't have... um, you you have people with fewer and fewer tight social bonds, people become turtles. They shrink. And we are genetically hardwired to fear change. And... And people are never going to embrace change, which is what Labor was offering, when they don't feel certain about their place in the world. Or the the things around them that give their world context. I I think that's what we were looking at. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. And historically, whilst we've had a bit of instability in our leadership over the last, well, since 2007, essentially, Mm -hmm. um, we rarely do change governments yeah. at a federal level. We resist it, don't we, so much. We resist it. We've won government from opposition twice since World War II. Um, it's a big ask for people and we have to try and understand that. Yeah. You know, it's... Um, the world is perhaps a scary place to people at the moment. Yeah, and that sort of leads on, that's a nice sort of segue into what a, a lot of people will be racking their brain over and that mm. is the argument... Or the, or the concern that you can't run an election campaign that is a big target. Mm. Um, and a lot of people have been liking, likening this campaign to 1993, mm. a campaign that I remember quite vividly as a young person. That's without going to my own Labor story, but that's my Labor story is 1993. Right. Um, the unwinnable election. Um, and people, you know, looked at John Hewson and said you shouldn't... He rolled out the fight back package... Um, 12, more than 12 months out from the election mm. and tried to sell it to the electorate. Funny enough, it was about tax. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I said last week on the podcast, I said that I credit Daniel Andrews and his team in 2014 for, and because after the 2000 and, um, uh, sorry, the 1993 camp lost, John Howard went to the 1996 election campaign running a small target strategy. Uh, He was just, I am not going to tell you anything. I will tell you that there is sort of a um, seven minutes of economic sunshine with this government, Hmm. and if you want security, you should vote for me, but I'm not going to tell you how I'm going to do it. I'm just... We were a bit the same, besides work choices, a bit the same in 2007. 
Absolutely. What, what did we promise? NBN and a laptop for each kid at school. Yeah, and, <laughs> and I'm going to. Yeah, I'm. I'm Kevin Rudd. And, I'm and, from Queensland. and vaguely, vaguely some reform to the IR system, but we never really outlay, out, no. laid out our plan for yep. it. And I'm just going to be as economically conservative mm. as John Howard. In fact, I think he may have sort of said, "I, I am a proud economic conservative." Like mm. he, he, he just said, "Me too," mm. but but um, just a, a bit of a, a better option. Mm. And at the time, voters went, "Yeah, okay, we can change." Um, what I don't want to see happen is, and yeah, so the original point I was trying to make was that, so Daniel Andrews came out and said, no, no, I'm going to roll out policies early. I'm not going to do this. I'm just going to try and sneak into government from opposition. I'm actually going to talk to the electorate and say, this is what we're going to do. Yeah. Um, and he did do that with his, with, you know, his jobs plan, with, um, with the level crossing removal, with um, trying to fix the war, end the war on the paramedics. He looked at a bunch of things that were going on in society, which he thought that voters were not happy about, and he basically said to the if you vote for me, I'll fix that, mm-hmm. and life will be better for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what we've done this time, we've taken that model and said, okay, yeah, we're going to announce our policies super, super early as well. Perhaps the problem was is that the electorate didn't like the policies that we were going to announce or there was enough in there to say, eh, not ready for that, not going to make that change. Because it was a move to us at the last election. There no, was. In- it, it, you, you look at some of the policies that we took to, to that election that we took to this election, particularly negative gearing. I mean, everyone, I remember 2016 was almost like a victory party because we did so much better than we thought we might. Correct. And, of course, it felt like an endorsement of what we had offered up. People weren't quite there, you know. They'd only had the coalition in for a term. Okay, that's all right. Well, then let's push on to next time. And it wasn't – they weren't ready. And this is why I don't know. I don't think it was our policy offerings that scared people off because, you know, like I said, there was a lot of um, encouragement around that early on. There's something else. And I think – I think uh, one of the things that was refreshing about this campaign was that it was a policy election. And people are always, the, you know, the, the pundits are always talking about how we, you know, it's so about, it's, it's American-style politics these days, it's all about personality, that we basically run presidential campaigns, but not this time. Labor really came to the, to the table with good policy offerings. And what were the Conservatives doing? They were being quite literally conservative. They were offering the status quo. What was Scott saying? Like, um, now's not the time, you know. We can't afford Bill Shorten. He was offering up a conservative strategy, which is always inherently in conservatism a do-nothing strategy. Yeah, what do we want? Gradual change. When do you want it in due course? Yeah. <laughs> that would be at their rallies. If, yeah, they, if they did rallies, yeah. that would be their chance. Yeah, yeah. In- in- incrementalism, yeah. right? Like, yeah, it's uh, evolution, not revolution. <laughs> <laughs> um, and really, this, this is the thing, is that uh, their love of meritocracy and that sort of fierce defence of the individual came through this time, like your rights, you know, and Labor was offering up solidarity, but solidarity is an assault on the the Conservatives' idea of meritocracy. And I think underlying all of the things that they were saying was that was that um, sort of uh, really westernised sort of capitalist construct that that um, you know the individual is is what's important and. Yeah. And we were offering up that it's community and looking after one another that we need as a country. Yeah. Mm. I think going forward as well, as a warning to all progressives, we can't underestimate Scott Morrison. 
Um, I'm certainly not suggesting that the, the, the main campaign did underestimate Scott Morrison, but anecdotally speaking to people on the left side of politics, mm. um, I think there was, a, there was a bit of left-wing elitism towards Scott, right. you know, the Engadine Maccas stuff. That was and, pretty funny. <laughs> and it was incredibly funny. Like, <laughs> But also so niche. Like no one outside of Meme on the Hill, which is, for those who don't know, a, a uh, effectively a Labor meme group on Facebook, um, no one knew what that was about. No. Right? That was a bubble yeah, uh, gag yeah, for Indeed. Sure. And a very funny one <laughs> at that. Really but cool. there was a, almost, it was kind of emblematic as well of people's attitudes towards Scott Morrison. Right. Uh, he's, he was either... The old Scott Morrison, which mm. was, you know, that evil person that yeah. um, was the immigration minister that mm. had um, implemented some pretty rank policies in treatment mm. of um, mm. fellow human beings. Um, or there was um, um, sort of the buffoonery-looking Scott Morrison. Yeah. The, you know, the up-close selfies and the stupid caps. Yeah. Yeah. All and, of that yeah. kind of stuff. Mm. Look at that and don't, I would suggest, just reconsider how that goes down in Voterland because I think that he, in the end, came across as that folkiness mm. um, looked... There was a... I think he... There was an authenticity to that. We might have looked at that and went, oh, God, you are such a dick. And, he, you know, he is a dick. But yeah. it, it looked... He was an authentic dick. And I think I some know, dads kind of identified with reckon, that. I yeah, I do. That, uh, interesting. I don't think that it that had cut through or resonance. I really don't. I think the fear campaign that they ran did, I don't know that people like Scott Morrison or f- or felt that he was, you know, he was one of us but a bit better, which is what, kind of what people want in their politician, right? They want them to be like us but better. Yeah. That's sort of what we look to when we look to someone in power. He, I don't know that it cut through, but you've got to remember with Scott Morrison, f- he is the stark contrast between him and Turnbull is that Morrison, he was a party official. He's a campaigner. He ran that Tourism Australia board, the, whatever they are. are yeah, 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 yeah. Like, he, 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 yeah, where the bloody hell are you? <laughs> yeah, you know, he, he knows how to run campaigns and he's hard-nosed about it, right? Turnbull's kind of was this sort of wet, weak... Who like I can't even. He's so black that I can't even yep. think of a good description of him. But uh, Morrison is a sharp campaigner, absolutely, and was absolutely unapologetic in the way he approached the last few months. Yeah, and I think that um, you, you know, you, I think you're right in that. In it, did it cut through? It probably didn't, but it didn't. It, it's going to set him up now going forward mm. that he can build a good relationship with the Australian community. Mm. Um, in that. Um, that core group of voters that you need to communicate with mm. that are, are the undecideds or the persuadables, um, that they will look to him and think, he's okay, you know, um, and that what he's doing is good. Um, well, that's what worries me yeah. is that he's been he's, – his approach and style has just been endorsed effectively. Yeah. You know. And I think that Ugh. if we continue to approach him mm. as – just as dismissing him as, as, as something that is lesser – than what and laughable. Yeah, then we may have some problems and we just need to be a little bit careful about that. And I think that's, that goes beyond Scott Morrison. I think it speaks to the electorate. And there's so much, I mean, Twitter is a cesspool at the best of times, but there's so much mudslinging and, you know, celebrities and, you know, name-calling anyone who voted for the coalition. And, and there's this real dismissiveness and anger um, look at the um, look at the convoy up to Queensland. 
I mean, there are so many things that um, we do as a community that are, that are just wrong when it comes to politics and, and blaming one another for our political views is right up there. And, yeah, blaming the whole state of Queensland. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, that's like, right. I mean... I just I was seeing that on Twitter on Saturday night and going mm. on oh, no 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 that's that's not right that's and it can be a little funny and comforting but really when we get down to it it's part of the problem isn't it yep. <laughs> yeah it really is yeah it really is yeah um, okay um, what uh, I want to talk to you about now is sort of considering uh, we now have to have a new leader um, for the party mm-hmm. um, just to sort of get a sense from you about the next steps. In regards to that, there will be some people listening that are members of the Labor Party mm-hmm. will have a say in who the future leader of the party is to take us forward. Mm. Um, we've got a um, so we've got a leadership uh, ballot, which is only the second time it's happened in our history. Yeah, um, Kevin Rudd implemented the process that we're about to go through, and uh, probably arguably, you know, one of the few good things that he did as a leader of the party. It's really amazing. I think one of the takeaways from all of this is that the last six years for members and campaigners for the Labor Party, it has been a time of intense pride and I think that's come largely from how stable Bill and the team were. Um, There was barely ever a hint, except for the rubbish that sometimes the media try to whip up around, you know, oh, is there going to be a leadership challenge from Elbow, blah, 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 whatever. It never amounted to anything. Um, That stable team allowed a good quality Labor platform, and it gave us a, a, a great selling point out in the community. You could get out there and campaign for Labor and feel really good about it, and that's because we were a completely different yeah. party to what we had been in the six years previous. Absolutely. Mm. That was Achilles' heel for us for that whole mm-hmm. period. It was, it? of course. And, and you know what? It makes me sick <laughs> that the Liberals haven't been whacked for their misbehaviour like we got whacked for ours. Uh, yeah, and I, I like... Again, that could have been a strategy that, I mean, he deliberately was going to go as late as he possibly could to try mm. and repair any of that potential damage and mm. then prosecute a negative on Labor. I think yeah. that was kind of the strategy, really. That's true. And, I mean, you look at the November result at the state election here in Victoria, and a lot of that was because Daniel Andrews had run an excellent government, I mean, really had been exemplary. Um, but there was also a lot of people really pissed off with the Liberal Party for their behaviour in Canberra, and I think it translated... Absolutely, and, and that had died away a bit by by May. So tell us um, about the uh, actually no, sorry. Before we do that, mm. I, I wanted to just talk about some of the highlights of the campaign. Right. Um, just want to end like all good organisers end on a high note. End on a high. Uh, um, uh, want to get your thoughts from uh, your time now at head office? You've been in there since Feb- mid mid Feb. Mid Feb. It's been about three months, I yep. think. I think yeah, three months. Um, mm-hmm. And um, in your role as the assistant secretary now, overseeing the Victorian Field Program. Mm. Just get your thoughts on 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 how that went. Honestly, the highlights have been the team that I got to come in and work with really to watch that in action close up was excellent honestly Stephen we have the best people in our corner and I got to work with them for three months in a really intense pressure cooker environment like campaigns always are Um, but to see them go out there day after day with dedication and passion and 
put their heart and soul into it. That's an amazing thing to be around. And I took so much inspiration from it. Um, we ran a fantastic field campaign, as Victoria has since they've had since we've had a, a field campaign. People going out there every day. And I think this is one of the one of my favourite things about field is that it's it, it's a vehicle for us to talk to people about labour. But I think, you know, that cynicism that I was talking about before where people feel like politicians are very removed from them and that politics doesn't have an impact on their life and that, you know, parties and and politicians are just a rabble who are interested in themselves and not the public. The field program busts that down. Mm. We go out there and we do listen to people and we don't judge and we have a conversation we talk about why we're passionate and out there. Um, And then we listen to people about where they're at and that's such a great way of rebuilding that trust that I was talking about before that I think is lost it gives us such an opportunity to um, reassure people that (laughs) politics is local politics is personal and we're here to to have that discourse with you Um, and it's always a privilege to show up on a door or pick up the phone and try and engage people in that yeah, and there's something to be said about, uh, you know, our field organisers, so our paid staff, but um, also our volunteers and volunteer leaders, the mm. people that are having those conversations, particularly the ones who are regular volunteers that would mm-hmm. probably do one or two shifts a week yeah. over the course Remarkable. of a six-month period. Mm. They're talking to thousands, thousands. and thousands mm-hmm. of voters. Yeah. Um, they're the people that have a real – those volunteers have a great – grounded understanding of certainly their own community and the yeah. views of their own community mm. uh, it's they are not in a bubble no they are they are there that and that ultimately that is what grassroots organizing is about yeah um, but we shouldn't take that for granted Mm-mm. um and uh sometimes i think everyone on twitter could probably do with a dose of maybe three or four door knocks over a period of time just to recalibrate <laughs> their opinions about what the society they're living in is like um, um, to, to go a little bit off track, funnily um, on Twitter, I saw something yesterday about. I think it's at I think it's at Griffith University. There's somebody who runs this database that basically does like a qual analysis on um, people's opinions, and the opinions are taken from Twitter. And apparently, it predicted the Trump win in 2016. I read that, and it predicted the Morrison win this time. But it also it also predicted a loss in the marriage equality campaign. And I was thinking about that, and I thought, well, this is a really interesting way to do it. But the problem is. I think Twitter skews conservative. Yeah. I think I think people who uh, have neg- negative um, feels and opinions, or perhaps, or um, not even negative, but you know, more right wing. I'm, I'm never a fan of the term right wing. You know, right wing, left wing, chicken yeah. wing. I just don't think it cap- <laughs> encapsulates much. <laughs> but um, but but for for all intents and purposes, you know, those right wing views. I think that. On the online presence um, of people is much stronger in that conservative community. So uh, anyway, yes, people on Twitter probably need to get out there and have a chat with their neighbours and ta- put politics on the table. We need to be talking about it more. It shouldn't be uh, like religion. They shouldn't be taboo subjects. We just need to bring a bit more respect into the conversation, which the volunteers and the field organisers do so well. Yeah. I just love that about them is that they go out there and they talk to people who often have quite different views to them but it's a chat. That's okay. You're a fellow human being and you're going to think differently, but let's let's unpick it. Yeah. And mm. I hate using analogies of based on sort of military, but they're very battle-hardened, yeah. our volunteers, you know. Yeah. They're like, and there's a, there's a real low... There's a resilience, isn't there? Yeah, mm. and no bullshit meter mm. kind of mm. thing going on. Like, you know, if someone... I, I saw one of the volunteers uh, uh, on polling day at one of the booths who had... I discovered later 
from talking to her that she'd made a lot of calls and knocked right. a lot of doors right. to another volunteer who hadn't done any of that. Mm. Uh, and the non-field volunteer, let's call them, yeah. uh, f- sort of threw up a couple of theories about, you know, voters and voters' intentions. And the volunteers just, just – they didn't really know each other, but just said, no, that's absolutely complete bullshit. <laughs> 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 just sh- shut it down. Yeah, right. And I was like, oh, okay, radio. Right. Um, but then I was getting talking to her and I said, so what have you been doing on the campaign? Oh, you know, you know, make calls, knock doors, blah, blah, blah. And I went, mm, okay, right, that makes mm, sense. Mm, mm. Um, so, yes, that's a great highlight from the campaign. So mm. I'm glad that, that – that, you know, it's an emboldening experience, even in a loss. It is. It really is. I think I think one of the things – you know, there's um, – there is, I think, suffering caused through self-centering and the field program will – bust that wide open you know when you have when you, you when you are participating in the field program you cannot ignore the other and it's when we ignore the other when we sort of cancel out other human beings from our experience that actually we close off and and the world darkens um as much as it can be tough fronting up at doors when people don't necessarily want to talk to you or fronting up at doors and having a conversation with somebody who's like i'm voting for pauline hansen or yeah, yeah. <laughs> um having to take on board another person's opinion and be respectful about that does wonders to you as a human being. I really think that. Yeah. And when you do have a good conversation or you do shift a vote. Mm, oh, yeah. That, and then that's So just, rewarding. Oh, so good. Yeah. yeah, yeah Can't yeah. beat that. Yeah. I know. It's great. Uh, the candidates. I was inspired by a lot of the candidates that ran certainly here in Victoria and got sort of exposure to them, um, either physically going out there and meeting them or, or just even on their sort of presence on social media. Mm. Uh, I thought that was a highlight. Um, you know, some of them weren't successful. Mm. Uh, I thought Jana um, uh, Stewart, who ran in uh, Kuyong, Kuyong yeah. um, I found her to be, you know, incredibly inspiring um, woman, um, you know, from Indigenous background. Like, and th- like when that um, – was it Julian Burnside, the, Lib- the Green candidate – Liberal arts fraud in, um, you know, n- mentioned that he was running against, completely dismissed her. Um, yeah. oh, but, yeah. but in the end, um, I think the results show that I think Labor came second. In, we had in the most, I think, re- remarkable cohort of candidates we've possibly ever had, and really phenomenal women. Like we had, we had Jana, Fiona McLeod, uh, Jennifer Yang, favourite, love her. Um, Libby down in Karangamite, we had Peter. We had just the most top-notch women running for us. And I think that is, if there are any takeaways, that's one of them that let's continue. I mean, we're the the Labor Party. We always put up good people. But this was really a standout group of people. They were remarkable. Um, Um, Really smart, like really accomplished Amazing listeners, hardworking Simon Curtis in Latrobe. What a legend! I mean, he went flat knacker to go and talk to his community and, um, you know, put out a fantastic sell. He was on the doors every day. He knocked. He spoke to thousands of people, t- probably tens of thousands of people. Um, really, just a dedicated person. Background as a teacher. Amazing. Yeah. Everyone that we put up, I think we can be so proud of. And beyond that, across the nation as well, there's a lot of inspiring candidates that we saw yeah. put their hand up. And, mm-hmm. and some of them have been lucky enough to get elected yeah. and will form the basis of future Labor governments. Mm. Um, and it is funny, isn't it? It just goes to show that there's not always, this is not always a contest of merit. 
No. Because if it was, there'd be a lot more Labor people in Parliament right yeah, now. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and your namesake, Josh Burns, as well. Um, oh, bless his heart. Uh, I'm so glad. That's gr- just such a win. That's just so good. Great yeah. result. And just... Uh, At least we got one Burns in Parliament. That's right. <laughs> Indeed. He came up to me, because uh, we had him on the first podcast. I think he did it more as a favour to me than anything. Uh, <laughs> but he came up to me on the night and walked up to me and said, it was the podcast. Mm-hmm. It I, was. Sold it. I said, that's right, it. mate. Yeah, yeah, don't worry yeah. about direct photo contact. Yeah. Just come on my show. I'll sort it out for <laughs> yeah. you. All six of my listeners definitely voted for you. That's right. Yeah. And they spoke to 10 of their friends. Yeah, spoke to 10 oh, no, of their friends. Exactly. I'm getting the word out my own way. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, let's uh, quickly turn to uh, the leadership belt before we wrap up. Right. Tell us the process, Claire Burns. How is this going to happen? So voting members of the party and each state has different rules around which party members get a vote. The ballots, I believe last time they were posted to us, we fill it out, we return it back, and as the rank and file, our vote will count for 50% of the overall result, and then the caucus will get the other 50%. So it's a combined caucus rank and file um, vote. So uh, last time, I believe it was caucus votes that helped Bill become elected as our leader, Um, and it'll be really interesting to see who gets who puts their hand up i think albo's already announced yep. that he will tanya's musing i've seen a couple of other names on twitter who knows yeah, but there's a whole bunch of sort of potential ha- um, candidates that that's are right yeah considering putting their hand up chris mm. bowen like even uh, sort of younger parliamentarians like jim chalmers from queensland right, right. is also yeah. okay considering so mm-hmm. it mm. will be um a really interesting exercise mm. and in some ways it can actually be quite cathartic for the for the party membership mm. So it will be interesting to see mm. um, the, the, how, well, first of all, who the candidates are and, mm. um, and what kind of campaign we have and what kind of conversations then happen. I really encourage, um, you know, any of the rank and file members listening that you should get involved in one of the campaigns. And, um, you know, Yeah, you pick your person, yeah, and, get um, in and, and go do and, it. Go yeah. and talk to some other party members. Yeah. Uh, it actually yes, will... well, it's an interesting, it's a very different thing yeah. to be chatting to party members yeah. about who, who to support rather than voters. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Um, and we may try and uh, get some of the candidates once they nominate onto Socially Democratic. We can have a bit of a chat and they can cool, talk directly cool. to, mm. uh, to the people. Um, I like it. Claire, thank you very much for coming on today. Oh, thank you. Do you know, this is exactly what I needed. (laughs) A good debrief and unpick of things. I know, and I thought to myself... uh, um, With a fellow traveller. Indeed. It's a different kind of conversation if you're talking to somebody who hasn't been in the trenches. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, Look, I know, look, I do greatly appreciate you coming on the show because after a loss, sometimes it can can be like, I just don't want to talk. I'm going to hide in my sadness cave until I'm forced to leave for food. Yeah, just eat. (laughs) That was me yesterday. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Yeah, a lot of Indian and a lot of uh, really shitty Avengers films. Yeah, 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 yeah. Netflix take, took up a lot of time. Yesterday. Whatever just can take your mind off. <laughs> and every now and then looking I, I tell you what, well, I'm thinking I'm banning myself from Twitter. Oh yeah, don't it's just a pit. It's horrible. Yeah, a dumpster fire, I think is it what really, Sabino yeah, called yeah, it last yeah, week. Yeah, yeah. A so pile maybe, of hot garbage. Yeah, maybe yeah. Uh, all of us can take uh, some uh, solace in uh, getting off Twitter and just hanging out with your family and friends. I think and that's a great idea. And whatnot and yeah. regroup and get ready to, mm. you know, build another campaign to, mm, you know, mm-hmm. keep doing the things that we want to do to make our country better. Yeah, we will persevere. All right. All right. Claire, thank you. Thank you, comrade. 